The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to be uh, resuming uh, our studies in systematic theology. Uh, yes, that's right, resuming. That was a couple years ago, I know. Um, and I know you won't need any refresher at all from those topics we studied earlier, so we can just begin right here and just continue on. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I'm just so grateful for a congregation that never forgets anything they learn at all <laughs> and, and gets it right the first time. We can just be ever building you know, that city of truth within our hearts. So that's a marvelous thing. Yes, tonight we're going to be uh, resuming, and in Grudem's section uh, in in his systematic theology, uh, he breaks his work into seven major sections. We've covered two of them, uh, the doctrine of the Word of God and the doctrine of God. This third section is the doctrine of man, and we're going to be studying, uh, beginning to study that tonight. Uh, The other four are the doctrine of Christ and of the Holy Spirit, uh, the application of redemption, the doctrine of the church, and of last things or the future. So that's... Uh, out down the road. I don't know when we'll get to that. Just by way of reminder, uh, systematic theology is a study of the Bible topically. Uh, Basically, we go through uh, the Bible and uh, zero in on a a topic and see everything that the Bible, or not everything, but, uh, you know, get a comprehensive sense of what the Bible would say on that particular topic. Good systematic theology will arrange those topics also in an orderly fashion like we just heard Grudem did. And there's lots of different ways to organize all of those topics in an orderly fashion. They follow into uh, certain lines of reasoning. For example, the doctrine of revelation usually comes first so that we have some basis of making all the spiritual statements that we make. So you have the doctrine of of general revelation and a special revelation, how God has revealed himself to us. And that's a good place to begin because uh, after that you're going to be making all of these incredible pronouncements about all these spiritual topics and we need a source of information, don't we? So they start uh, frequently with the doctrine of of revelation or the word of God, so Grudem does. And then we had a marvelous time, at least I enjoyed it, um, studying the doctrine of God. Uh, It's really an infinite uh, study and we could be going on forever and ever studying the attributes of God and his decrees and his uh, actions in history, etc. But now we're going to be uh, zeroing in on this doctrine of man. And what I've done is I've taken Grudem's work and just uh, kind of brought out the main topics of this, uh, this sub-topic of man and uh, brought it out here on the first page or two so you get a sense of the overview of the kind of things that Grudem is going to cover. Uh, the first is the creation of man. We'll be talking about that tonight, just this letter A. So... Uh, just in terms of the roadmap where we are, we're going to be looking at the creation of man. Uh, one of the subtopics there is the use of the word man to refer to the human race. We'll talk about that briefly and then get into why was man created. And then we'll be talking the rest of the time about the idea of God created in the image of man. What does that mean? Then uh, in the future, we'll be looking at such topics as man as male and female, uh, personal relationships, equality and personhood and importance, difference in roles, and a note on application to marriage. Uh, the third subsection is the essential nature of man. The issue of the trichotomy or dichotomy or monism of man has to do with how many essential parts man is made up of. Are we body and soul or are we body, soul and spirit? Now you say, you know, it really isn't going to make much of a difference in my life if we're two or three. 
Well, that's true, but we still want to study and try to understand, is there a distinction between soul and spirit, etc.? Those are the kind of things that systematic theologians spend their time doing, while others are like in the factory or in the lab or in the bank or whatever. These guys are discerning the difference between soul and spirit, and we're grateful for their work, aren't we? So, good. So, we'll be talking about trichotomy and other things, and where does our soul come from? Then the doctrine of sin. What is sin? The definition of sin. What is the origin of sin? And the doctrine of original sin, or what Grudem calls inherited sin. Uh, And then actual sins in our lives and the punishment of sin. And then finally, the covenants between God and man. What principles determine the way that God relates to us? The covenant of works, the covenant of redemption, and the covenant of grace. So, that's an overview of this whole uh, section of the doctrine of man. There's a lot of things that we could put under each of those subcategories, a lot of scriptures, a lot of ideas, but that's the way Grudem organizes his work. But let's zero in on this idea of the creation of man. And before we even get uh, to this first topic that Grudem brings up, namely the use of the word man, just realize that when we talk about the creation of man, we're really at loggerheads with the scientific community that surrounds us all the time. Uh, They would not speak of the creation of man. They would speak of the evolution of man. Now, we went through that whole issue before in the doctrine of God, but uh, we believe that God specially created man in his image. And that's going to be the foundation of what we're talking about tonight, uh, that we were created by God, that we are not an accident of evolution. We're not time plus chance uh, and an arrangement of molecules that came up out of some kind of uh, molecular slime years ago, which uh, a lightning bolt happened to hit and create proteins. I mean, it's just astonishing that anybody really can think that. But that's what they think. And uh, uh, for us, we would not speak in this language. We're talking about uh, the creation of man. That you are, and each one of us as human beings, specially fashioned and formed by the hand of God. That God knit us together in our mother's wombs. And that really goes together, I think, and I, I hope you see the connection with what I'm preaching in Romans 9. That we are vessels, as Christians, we're vessels of mercy. Um, and that we are crafted by God. We are the clay and he is the potter. Uh, we are all the work of his hands, as he said. So just want to say that right up front. I love to study the doctrine of creation. I really do, especially the creation of man. I like to talk about it. I like to think about it. I like to read books on the issue of evolution. I like to try to understand it. And I think this is one area that the Christian church has made incredible strides in the last 30 years or even less. I think we're really kind of back on our heels when facing the scientific community for a long time. But now there's so many good books written from the scientific perspective showing why it's reasonable to believe the things that God has said. And that's encouraging, isn't it? So I would would urge you to find some of the works put out by the Institute for Creation Research and Ken Ham's group, um, Answers in Genesis, some of these others. They do really, really good work. Let's start with this idea of the use of the word man to refer to the human race. Now, uh, recent history on this, uh, there's been an attack in the last generation uh, by feminists on male-dominated terminology. So they invent interesting words like women, W-O-M-Y-N, or women, I like this one, it's kind of like swimming, only without the S. Um, and the, uh, the goal here is to avoid any kind of verbal connection between, um, well, female and male doesn't help them either. So they're trying to find a way to disconnect females from males. And terminology is very important to them. I would urge you not to pursue the title women very much because very soon you get into lesbian websites and other things, not that you would ever even open up, but I'm just saying there's an amazing connection between that word and a whole uh, ungodly lifestyle. But uh, there is a terminology and attempt to get get away from the W-O-M-A-N terminology 
Along with that, um, there is a uh, desire for what they call gender-inclusive language. And this is kind of all the rage at universities and seminaries. As a matter of fact, when I was at seminary, uh, one of the seminaries I attended, they uh, were urging us to use gender-inclusive language in our papers. So you, you can't use things like, like the word man to speak of the human race. You're going to use words like humanity, humankind, human beings, persons, that kind of thing. You know, it's a, and it's extended to roles in society. We no longer have chairmen, of course, but chairpersons uh, or spokespersons. I was at a colloquium last week of pastors, nothing but, but men there, and uh, we still use the term spokesperson. So I thought... You know, I mean, we know we're all men. At least we all really look like men. I was pretty sure we were all men. Uh, my favorite is the, the, you know, we don't only have waiters and waitresses. Instead, we have this. Hi, my name is Amber, and I'll be helping you guys out tonight. That kind of thing. Would you like to order any drinks to start with? This kind of thing. Have you ever had that? Somebody uh, helping you out? Uh, we don't have waitresses anymore. We have Amber, who's helping us out. Um, or we have Jason, who's going to be our server tonight. So... Uh, I would think Jason would know whether he's a male or not and would be able to use the word waiter, and Amber would know whether she's a female and would be able to use the word waitress, but we just don't. And I think it's a, a general push in society to get away from gender meaning anything at all, that there's absolutely no significance whatsoever to being male and female. We're not going to, in a wholesale way, get into that topic tonight. It's a, uh, in a, a later chapter that Grudem wrote, the significance of gender. But uh, the terminology uh, is uh, very interesting. Uh, you know that recently there's been somewhat of a hot controversy over gender-inclusive Bibles, like the TNIV. Uh, the TNIV uses a kind of a gender inclusivity. Uh, it started simply by avoiding the use of the word man in generic situations. The RSV would give us something like this in Luke 9.23. And he said to all, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But now um, you get in the new uh, RSV. Then he said to them all, if any want to become my followers, let them plural, deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Even though the Greek is singular, they're going to go over to plural uh, because the English language doesn't have a good way to deal with the kind of generic human term. Uh, Greek has anthropos, which is generic and speaks of humanity, uh, but English uh, forces us in some difficult ways. Uh, But that's fine, and I I support efforts to uh, speak more generally in that way. But uh, it goes beyond that. Then they start to add extra words. They change from Paul's consistent addresses to churches, brothers, for example, to brothers and sisters. Uh, and perhaps you've seen this. For example, in Romans 12:1, the NIV, it gives you, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, uh, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. But this is a very common way that Paul uh, addresses the churches and he'll use this title, Brothers. But the NRS is going to give us this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, uh, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual uh, worship. Now, the, the problem here is that you're definitely inserting words that aren't there in the Greek text. And there, there were ways to say kai adelphi, uh, the feminine version Uh, in the Greek, but Paul didn't choose to do that. And so just as a matter of principle, we would not want to be adding any words to the text, but just read as as it's written. Uh, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Book of Revelation, yeah. Well, yeah, um, 
see, there are different levels of adding something to the Bible. All right, every translator adds something in order to get the idea out from Greek over into English. You're adding things that are not literally there. If you have a literalistic, perhaps you've read maybe an interlinear before, it doesn't read like English at all. It's a jumble. So you have to do some kind of work translating. But it gets a little gray area, and this isn't just translating work, is it? There's a philosophical reason that the, that they're doing this, and that's when you get into difficulties. Well, you know, it gets even worse. Uh, by the way, this idea of sisters, the word sisters appears eight times in the NIV in the New Testament and 97 times in the NRSV. So that, that tells you right there that there's an intentional um, addition that's going on there. Well, it gets even worse than that. They extend it even to God, uh, and that's where you run into just high levels of distress, and that's where Elijah, our brother, is going to point out we... We are in danger of having plagues added to us when we start doing this. Not, we don't speak of God Himself, but God, God's self. So work on that one for a while. I mean, after a while, you kind of lost hold of English um, in order to make an effort to keep away from God having any gender. Um, and it's, it, it gets worse. Christ is not the Son of God; He's the child of God, uh, and God is not our heavenly Father, but our heavenly Parent. So at any rate, there's a little article uh, that I got from the Internet there on bottom of page three about gender inclusivity, but let's just turn the page. Um, I think there is a good reason for using the word man to refer to the human race um, and to stand in the face of this kind of, um, shall I say it, nonsense. Um, you know, to me, I think these, the, this terminology is not, is not going to improve anybody's self-esteem or standing. What's going to improve their self-esteem and their standing is to know how God sees them and to teach the biblical truth. I don't think you could ever stand higher than to be a redeemed child of God, male or female. How could you stand higher, male or female, than being created in the image of God and redeemed to be conformed to the image of Christ? That's where we get our significance, not from terminology like this. Some of these folks are, are among the most miserable people I've ever met in my life anyway. Uh, so I'm not sure that I'd want to follow them in a path of misery. Rather, let's follow where God it says in, in Psalm 16, in his presence is the fullness of joy. At his right hand, eternal pleasures forevermore. So let's be with him, all right? Let's be close to God because that's where joy and significance is going to come from. But does God use the word man to refer to the human race? And the answer is he does. In Genesis 5, 1 and 2, it says, this is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he, he made him in the likeness of God. Uh, he created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. Now, that's a very strong verse, isn't it? He called them, plural, male and female, by Adam's name. The word man there is the same word as Adam, as Adam in the, in the Hebrew. And sometimes, frankly, as you translate it, it's hard to know in the early chapters of Genesis, should you use the capital letter proper noun Adam or should you just say man? Because it's difficult to know uh, early on, for example, in Genesis 2, and God made the man, Adam, uh, and created him and put him in the garden. So at any rate, basically this couple, uh, Adam and Eve, were called by the man's name, Adam, and hence we have the, the tradition, or at least have had the tradition at uh, the wedding time of the, uh, the woman taking on the name of her, um, her husband. Uh, that is somewhat challenged these days. You get hyphenated names or even in uh, some cases, no name change at all. But I think this is the biblical foundation for it in Genesis 5 too. So the Bible therefore upholds using the same term to refer both to male human beings and to the human race generally. All right.
So we're going to use the word man uh, this evening when we're talking, we're talking about the human race. Now, the question that's in front of us here is why was man created? Why did God make us? Uh, first of all, we need to understand God did not need to create man. Yet he did create us and he did so for his own glory. All right. We should never imagine that God was somehow lonely or deficient, needing fellowship, needing friendship or anything. He may have desired fellowship and friendship and desired worship. And we believe he did, but he did not need those things. It's a marvelous thing to meditate on the eternity of the Trinity. The fact that God has forever existed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that the Father and the Son have had a wonderfully fulfilling relationship long before God said, let there be light. Long before there was any human being uh, on the scene, the Father and the Son were in a perfect fellowship together in the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful relationship there. And frankly, all of our relationships are patterned after that, aren't they? You know, a husband-wife relationship, a father-child relationship, a parent-child relationship, friend-to-friend. All of those are, are, to some degree, dim reflections of that perfect fellowship that there is in the Trinity. So God did not need to create us. He didn't need to make us, but he did uh, create us. And why did he do it? Well, he did so for his own glory. What do we mean by that? We talk about glory a lot in our church. We're talking about glory a lot as I go through Romans 9. Uh, What does glory mean? Well, it means a revelation, uh, 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 shall we say, a bright and shining revelation of God and his nature. God puts himself on display. He shines forth in his attributes and he does so when he makes us. We are created to show forth God and we are in a better position. uh, We're going to argue tonight a better position to glorify God than any other thing that God crafted anything else that he created because we are created in his image. So Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, speaking there about Israel, but I think we can apply it generally to the whole human race. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Uh, Revelation 4.11 says, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So God created all things by his power and for his own glory. That especially, I think, includes the human race. Our purpose in life then is set. We are here on earth to glorify God, to reveal his nature. Every time you're generous to somebody, you, you, you demonstrate that God is generous. Every time you're compassionate, every time you're courageous, you're like Christ. Every time that you love, every time that you imitate God in some way, you're displaying forth his glory. Also, you are glorifying God whenever you worship him, love him, put him first in your life. As we've quoted many times from John Piper, that God is most glorified in us when we in our hearts are satisfied, most satisfied in him as we find him to be fulfilling and wonderful and glorious and want to know him, then God is exalted that way. So we are in a wonderful position to glorify God. And all the more now that we have been so marvelously and beautifully redeemed by the work of Christ, by the shedding of his blood and by our faith in him and then our walking with him through obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to glorify God in a marvelous way. That is your purpose. Your purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if I could add to that, also to help others to do the same, that you would help others to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. So it says in Ephesians 1, 
Uh, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be, and look what it says, for the praise of his glory. We might be for the praise of his glory. What does that mean? We might exist. We might be what we are for the praise of his glory, that we might praise his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And again, for the praise of his glory. So that's why we're here. We were created for his glory and we also are redeemed for the praise of his glory. All right, now let's get to this issue of man created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, I've mentioned this before, but when I was uh, oh, probably about 10 to 12, 14 maybe, I got hold of a book called Chariots of the Gods. And uh, in that book, the basic premise of the book is that, uh, that the God of the Bible were actually aliens who came to earth and with great power kind of displayed. Uh, and they, they left evidence uh, in archaeology. There's pictures of spacemen in, in these, mo- these, these rock paintings out in the Aztec desert area and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's a very interesting argument. One of the ways they proved it is the plural language here in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image and all that kind of thing. Well, I don't think that's very strong proof for aliens coming to earth. I think rather that God is speaking intertrinitarianly here. He's speaking within the Father, Son, and Spirit Trinity, and he's saying, let us, God, in a sense plural, in a mysterious sense, also one singular, let us make man in our image. Well, what does it mean that we're created in the image of God? What does that mean? That's very important for us to try to understand uh, who we are. Uh, Wayne Grudem said, the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. So let me, let me put it to you this way. That, that would be two <clears throat> um, different aspects of the image of God. What we are like and what role we play here on earth. Okay, That's two different ways to understand the image of God. One is intrinsically, what are we like? What did, what did God build into us? What's in our minds? What's in our bodies? What did he make in us? And that's in the image of God. And then what role are we called to play here in this world? Uh, image of God. Okay. Um, well, how are we in the image of God? Well, in the following ways, in intellectual ability, in moral purity, in spiritual nature, in dominion over the earth, in creativity, in ability to make ethical choices, and immortality. And we're going to get into uh, talking about each of those a little bit later on. Now, if we're going to study, I don't know if I have a marker here. Well, it doesn't matter. It's just a simple idea. I don't have to draw it. But uh, on the top. Oh, well, thank you very much. That's great. Okay, if we're going to study the doctrine of man, I think you basically have to break it into three sections. Not that they're totally uh, distinct from each other, but man as created originally. Okay, so that would be good. 
God said all things were good, very good, created. How were we made originally? How was Adam made? What was that? Secondly, man has fallen in sin. And third, man has redeemed in Christ. And there are different aspects of each of those studies that we'll want to look into. All right, Each one of them, there's something that we need to say to try to understand uh, who we are. What is, what is man? Um, man is originally created, created good. We get that as we just read in Genesis 1, 26-28. Created in the image of God. Given a certain role to play here in the world, etc. Man has fallen in sin is the next issue we have to look at. <clears throat> the, the fall uh, meant that God's image in us was distorted in some way. It was distorted in some way, but not lost. Well, what do we mean by distorted? How is the image of God distorted? Well, Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, This only I have found. God made mankind upright, but man have gone in search of many schemes. That's an interesting verse there. Or you could, uh, you could talk about Romans 3, uh, verse 9 and following. It says, What shall we say then? Are we any different? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Ruin and misery mark their ways, their way of peace they do not know. There's that whole description of man in sin. Um, that is what we're talking about here. But with all of that still being true, uh, we're still in the image of God. We're still created and, and we are still born in God's image. So the, the image is distorted, but it's not lost. Uh, look, for example, there at Genesis 9-6. This is after the flood of Noah. And uh, Noah comes out of the ark and he sets up a, 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 an altar and he offers a sacrifice um, to the Lord, a blood sacrifice. And uh, we have the rainbow there as the uh, symbol of God's forgiveness, his covenant that he's making. But then he gives this interesting statement, this rule. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, <clears throat> by man shall his blood be shed. That's what we call capital punishment for murder, right? So basically, uh, capital punishment for murder is established. I think this may give us an insight into what life was like before the flood. In that, the, one of the very first things that God says to Noah when he gets off the ark is, let's deal with this murder problem right now, Okay. I think that there was an awful lot of murder before the flood. You remember how it said in Genesis 6 that the heart of man was only evil all the time. Well, you can imagine how they related to each other. Basically, the survival of the fittest might, might made right. And, and there was probably, I would think, uh, it's not an extreme statement to say, a great deal of murder. Well, one of the things that God established to slow that down, not to remove it entirely, but to slow it down, is uh, the power of government. Uh, that government would have the right to shed the blood of a murderer. So whoever sheds uh, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This isn't just a prophecy like it's going to happen, there's going to be an avenger of blood, but there's a sense that this is what I have ordained in order to protect um, from rampant crime. But look at the reason that God gives. Whoever sheds blood, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be sh shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Now, this is a really interesting statement, okay? Because you can take it two ways. One is the reason that we take, we deal with murder so seriously 
is because man, even in a sinful state, is in the image of God and any murder is really an attack on the image of God directly. So we're going to deal with the crime itself very, very seriously because man is in the image of God. And so just like, you know, if you kill a policeman, there's a a very, very aggressive reaction from the government because it's not just the killing of an individual person at that point, but really an attack on the state and on government. Same thing with any attempt on the president's life or something like that. It's not just an average person. And so what he represents is at the highest level, etc. Well, so also murder is an attack on God. That's one way to look at this. There's another way though. And the other way is uh, the right or permission that a man has to carry out the sentence of judgment. You see? Not just that the the uh, one who has been murdered is in the image of God and therefore we have to deal with it seriously, but the judge who would carry out the capital punishment uh, sentence is in the image of God and therefore he's carrying out a God-like function here on earth. You know? And uh, I think Jesus uh, talks about this when he quotes in that very confusing passage, Psalm 82, uh, and he quotes it in John 10. I said, you are gods. Well, if you look at Psalm 82, he's dealing with um, the issue of judges in Israel. And he said, you're all gods, but you're all die like men. All right. But what he's saying there is you have a godlike function here in executing judgment. That's what I get out of this Genesis 9, 6. Okay. And then also it says in James 3, 9, well, either way, uh, I think the case is very clear there that man, even after the false, in the image of God, no matter how you interpret Genesis 9, 6, it's, it's the flood, it's after the flood, and, and God is making a pl- plain statement. We are now in the image of God, even with all of that sin. And then James 3, 9, it says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, basically said we just constantly are underestimating the human beings around us. We just don't see them properly. Because if we could see them the way they ultimately will be, we'd either be recoiling in horror and not want to even look at them, they'd be so horrendously disfigured and terrible, or we'd, we'd be tempted to fall down and worship them, so glorious would they be. But to us, it's just another guy walking down the street It's just another person waiting in line at Kroger. No, they're not. All of these people are created in the image of God. They're destined for eternity in heaven or hell, one or the other. And so, therefore, don't cut anybody out in line, all right? Just, you know, be polite, be kind, right? Treat people with respect and dignity. Well, let me tell you something. That's just the beginning of the ethics, all the way down to what we do with the gospel and how we pray for people and how seriously we deal with things. But anyway, we're just surrounded by people who are created in the image of God. And if you really meditate on this, I think it can affect how you see people, even total strangers. All right, so the image of God is still there. It's not lost. Now, redemption in Christ is a progressive recovering of more and more of God's image. It says in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, it says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, which is created to be, and here's the phrase, like God. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what that means is your new self, the new person you are in Christ, it's made to be like God. Do you not see the perfect symmetry to what God has done here? There's the original creation in the likeness and the image of God. 
There's the fall which mars that and brings in disease and sickness and death and rebellion and all those things. And then there's the work of Christ to get it back to the original intention and I would say even beyond into glory. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And so the miracles Jesus does so often, the healings, they're a restoration of eyes back to the way God intended that eyes would be able to see. A restoration of ears the way that they were originally made open and able to to receive and to hear sounds. Uh, A restoration of legs so that they could walk. Not just a a spectacular display of supernatural power like the uh, creation of a pink elephant in the middle of the sky that uh, twirls around. And I mean, I can't do that. And I would uh, probably worship somebody who could, you know, but, but that's not what he chose to do. He chose to restore to the original thing. Do you see how beautiful that is? Even when Peter chopped off Malchus's ear, what did Jesus do but give him a new ear? He recreated his ear. He's the recreator, Christ. And so he has given you, if you're a Christian, he's given you a new, a new person. And that new person is created to be like God. And you are to put on that new person which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of of his creator, it says in Colossians. So little by little, we are being brought back again to the image of God. We're brought back to think like God thinks. We're, We're being brought back to feel like God feels, to judge like God judges, to make right judgments the way he does, to execute our function here on earth the way he would if he were here. We are to be like God in every way. That we're, that we're created. I mean, obviously, there are incommunicable attributes and positions that only he has. But I mean, insofar as we were created to be like God, uh, that is our sanctification, our growing little by little. And someday it will all be completed. We will be like God in every way that God intended. We will be like God in a glorious way. We'll be like Christ, really. He'll be our pattern. It says in Romans 8, 29 and 30, uh, oh, I really should have given you verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Isn't that marvelous? I've been so much meditating on that this week because I'm preaching on Sunday on the idea of vessels of wrath versus vessels of mercy. And it says concerning the vessels of mercy that we are prepared in advance for glory. How How has God prepared you for glory today? He's been working on you. He's the potter and you're the clay and he is fashioning you for glory. He's getting you ready for glory. Isn't that wonderful? And so uh, he's causing all things to work together for good in your life so that you will be ready to be a vessel for glory. And it's important. I'm going to say this on Sunday. I shouldn't say any of these things. You already heard it and you'll look bored. It's like, I heard this on Wednesday. But uh, remember, the vessel is not your body. We have this treasure in jars of clay. You're going, you're going to be, be freed from this body of death someday. That's not what he's preparing. He's preparing your soul. He's preparing your heart, so to speak, that immaterial part of you to be able to receive glory. That's the preparation that's going on. Your body, it said, Paul says in one place, you're outwardly wasting away. That can't be what's being prepared for glory. But inwardly, you're being renewed day by day in knowledge in the image of God. So that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Just meditate on that. How could you be discouraged? How could you be down? I mean, it's amazing work that God's doing, getting us ready for glory. Must take quite some getting ready because think of all he's been doing for 2,000 years to get the church ready for glory. What an amazing thing. I go to prepare a place for you. He's been working on it for 2,000 years. We could go on and on and on, but we're not going to. Anyway, 
specific aspects of our likeness to God. So basically, like I said, originally created good, fell into sin, the image marred and twisted, grotesque really, and some people it seems barely recognizable. Some people are just monsters. They're so much like the devil, but yet still in the image of God while they live here on earth. Okay? Redeemed in Christ, created to be like God, God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, well, let's talk about some specific aspects of our likeness to God. First, there are moral aspects. We are created in the image of God morally, morally. Okay? We are, first of all, morally accountable to God for our actions. No wolf will ever have to, have to give an, uh, to God an account for ripping up a sheep. You know, no slug will have to, get, ever have to give an account for leaving a trail of slime. Okay, it's kind of what they do. But we have to give an account for our moral actions. We are morally accountable. Secondly, a uh, second moral aspect is we have an internal sense of right and wrong. We have a conscience. God's law is written in our hearts and our consciences alternately accuse us and defend us. We have a moral uh, nature and an internal sense of right and wrong that sets us apart from the animals. I've always thought it interesting that atheistic evolutionists tend to be tree hugger types that want to, us to conserve and protect certain forms or species of animals. I would like to know on what moral basis they make that claim, right? I mean, how can you say, I mean, if there's no God, but we should still preserve the spotted owl or the bald eagle or the whale or whatever, I think we should do it because God created them and we are, are stewards of what he's made. What reason do they give? But we have a difference between us and the animals in, in that we feel the need to protect the animals or to do what's right, etc. No animal feels that need. They just do uh, what comes naturally to them. An internal sense of right and wrong. We also thirdly have the ability to behave in a manner that's holy and righteous before God. We can do that. Um, we have that ability. Moral aspects. A second category is there are spiritual aspects spiritual aspects we have not only physical bodies but we have immaterial spirits by the way immaterial doesn't mean not important it means not made out of atoms okay not made out of stuff so we have a soul or body and we'll, i mean soul or spirit sorry and we'll talk about that when we get to that section as i mentioned earlier but anyway what that means is that we can act in ways significant in the spiritual realm things we do have an impact in the spiritual realm we can pray and uh, we can praise and we can worship God and we can do spiritual things. We have a spiritual life and we can relate to God as persons. We can know him. We can love him. We can, we can hear him speaking to us. We can follow him. We can have a relationship with him. Uh, thirdly, we are immortal. In that sense, we will not uh, cease to exist. All right. I, I hesitate to use the word live, that we will live forever because uh, the word live is a positive thing in the Bible. And Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and uh, the non-elect, those that never come to faith in Christ, those that do not believe in the gospel, uh, they get what's known as the second death. But we have learned, and we study the Bible, we have learned that it's an eternal death. It's a death that never ends. And again, I'll talk about this a little bit on Sunday, but you think about the uh, burning bush uh, that Moses saw. He saw that it was burning, but it wasn't burning up, 
right? And so that's a picture also of many things, but it's a picture, I think, of the, of the uh, damned in hell. They burn, but they don't burn up. There's just there. Jesus says in Mark 9, it's, uh, the, the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. And so uh, in one sense, we would not say they live forever in hell. There's no life there, but they do exist forever. They continue to be that person, that history, that continuity uh, forever and ever. That is an amazing thing, isn't it? We were created in our mother's wombs. God gave us a soul and that soul he gave us will never die. Never. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? So every human being you meet has a soul that can never die. How do you know that? Only one way you can know that. The Bible tells you so. There's no other way we could know that, but that's what the Bible tells us, that we will spend eternity either in heaven or hell. So there are spiritual aspects of being created in the image of God. Then there are mental aspects. Uh, For example, the ability to think, to reason logically, and to learn. Uh, Grudem, I loved uh, this paragraph, so I just uh, brought it down for you in a quote. Animals sometimes exhibit remarkable behavior in solving mazes or working out problems in the physical world, but they uh, certainly do not engage in abstract reasoning. Uh, There's no such thing as the history of canine philosophy, you know, a book you can take out at the library, for example. Nor have any animals since creation developed at all in their understanding of ethical problems or use of philosophical concepts, etc. No group of chimpanzees will ever sit around a table arguing about the doctrine of the Trinity or the relative merits of Calvinism or Arminianism. In fact, even developing physical and technical skills, we are far different from the animals. Beavers still build the same kinds of dams they've built for a thousand generations. There's no beaver development going on here. There's no improved beaver dams. What a thought. Isn't that amazing? Pretty much doing what they do. Birds still build the same kinds of nests. Bees, uh, the same kinds of hives. But we continue to develop greater skill and complexity and technology in agriculture, in science, and in nearly every field of endeavor. So I thought, well, let's illustrate this. So there you go, uh, page seven. This is a brief pictorial history of group human, can I add the word overland transportation, okay? This is kind of how we move overland in groups. So we started with the horse-drawn carriage there from about, looks like about the early 18th century, maybe, or mid-18th century, maybe early 19th century. Then you get the Conestoga wagon. Have you ever seen any of those? Those are cool. They uh, went across the, kind of how the West was won, you know, with the Conestoga wagon. Then you get the, um, the non-horse-drawn carriage, I guess the early kind of omnibus, uh, or what we, uh, eventually came to be called the bus. See that there's no horses in front of it there, uh, second column or first column, second picture down. Then you get kind of the old bus from the 30s, University of Arizona bus, all right? So there it is. Uh, and then a uh, newer bus, and then you probably remember those from the 60s or 70s, or pictures of them anyway, uh, r- rusting in, in junkyards now. Um, the double-decker buses, I had heard, were are obsolete. I don't know if you can still see them in London, if they still use them or if they're making them. I had heard that they were f- phasing them out. Are they still there? Oh, they still have them? Okay. Maybe I heard wrong, but anyway, um, for a long time, they were the, the symbol of London. And then now you got this state-of-the-art bus. Isn't that sharp looking? So that's probably some rock band or whatever traveling all over the country. All right, b- brief pictorial history of group human overland transportation. Now I have an even briefer uh, pictorial history of group bovine transportation. Uh, those are cows. Um, this is like from the west. They're kind of just walking in a herd across the land there. And this is uh, from modern day. See the similarities? 
So very, very little development of their technique of traveling in herds. So uh, a little bit of uh, comic relief. At any rate, the, the fact is that, that animals do not develop in their techniques. What they do, do now, they've done since they were made. But we, we keep coming up with new ways to do things. Um, and that's, that's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We're thinkers. We're, we have rational processes. We have logic. We have plans and visions inside. And we're able to execute those plans. Um, we also use complex abstract language. Again, a quote from Grudem. He said, I could tell my son when he was about four years old to go and get the big red screwdriver from my workbench in the basement. Even if he had never seen it before, he could easily perform the task because he knew the meanings of go and get and big and red and screwdriver and workbench and basement. Those words he had learned by age four, and he could be told to go do that. Uh, Furthermore, he could have also done it for a small brown hammer or a round black bucket beside the workbench. There is no chimpanzee in all history that's been able to perform such a task. Simply described in words, an item the hearer had never seen before. Chimpanzees cannot do that. They can be trained through repetition by rewards and punishments to do certain things, tricks and all that. But if you just sit a chimpanzee down and say, okay, now you've done that. Now I want you to go get the hammer instead. They'll look at you like this. They have no idea and there's no way you can communicate it. But essential to what we are as people is the ability to think abstractly using words. Do you not see how essential that is to our salvation? We we take this book and we open it up and we read and out of it, the parables speak truth to our hearts. It says in Galatians that Jesus, before their very eyes, was clearly portrayed as crucified. Do you think that Paul painted a picture? Well, he didn't paint a picture. He preached. And in preaching, they could see in their mind's eye Jesus hanging from the cross. They could see his blood flowing. They could see the nails. They could see the wounds. So can you. None of you have ever seen Christ with your own eyes, but you have an image inside your mind because of the power of words. So also you're just sitting and listening to me talk. And inside your mind, truths and concepts and thoughts are ruminating. That is a very human thing to do. This is what we're doing. So the the incredible gift of language, complex abstract language. Uh, Thirdly, we have the awareness of a distant future, an inner sense that we will live beyond death. Ecclesiastes 3.11 puts it this way, He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We all have that in us, don't we? A sense of forever. You know, so many non-Christian sappy love songs thought that their love would last forever. You know, there's a sense of what what is forever, your eternity inside our hearts. And even non-Christians feel that, don't they? They can kind of train themselves to think that death is all there is, but that actually isn't the natural state of the human mind. They naturally expect that they will exist forever. God has put um, the future uh, in our minds. Also, there is creativity, as we mentioned, in areas such as music and art and literature, technology, science, etc., Perhaps one of the clearest passages that teaches this is in Genesis 11. That's the Tower of Babel. And in that account of the Tower of Babel, it says, As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. 
But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, and this is God's assessment of the human race intellectually, if as one people speaking one language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. That's an amazing assessment that God gave, isn't it? An incredible assessment. And when you see how far technology has come from that moment to this, when you talk about like some of the nanotechnology I read in the MIT Tech Review, they talk about growing proteins and using them as, uh, as microconductors for, for chips that are so unbelievably smaller than what they have now. They say that within 20 years or less, you'd be able to have everything that has ever been printed, Library of Congress 20 times over on your laptop. No problem at all. You won't have time to read it all, but it'll all be there, all right? I mean, you can, all of the information could be stored there. The data storage will not be a problem. That is, that's amazing. And uh, in the same way, they're, they're using these, uh, these little microtubes, these nanotubes to do all kinds of things in microstructures and in biomedical research. It's amazing. Now, what did these people do? Well, they developed a way to make a better brick. That's all. Just to make a better brick. How did that help? Why was it better to use the brick than stone? Go ahead, tell me. Come on, let's be technology people here. Why was this an improvement? Brick over stone. It's lighter and easier to form. You can shape it whatever way you want. Okay, why, did that, why was it important to bake it thoroughly? So it wouldn't crumble. That's right. And let's coat it with pitch. See, there's, just res- there's a recipe of success here. And that becomes a symbol for all technology. They have studied something that's on the earth, studied its principles, studied its essential nature, and they've come up with a better way to do things. Well, that is the issue that God is dealing with in uh, Genesis 11. If this is what they can do, cooperating here, then nothing they desire to do will be impossible for them. And so we see the exaltation of man in his natural state here in Genesis 11. But we also see our humiliation too, in two senses, don't we? First of all, their sin. They're specifically trying to thwart what God wanted them to do. And they said, let's do this to make a name for ourselves. We were never made to make a name for ourselves. We're supposed to be exalting the name of God. So we see the humiliation of of man in his sin. What else humbles man? Well, this little statement here, um, it says in verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. I find that very interesting. Some people say, well, that's clearly that mythological language. Oh, don't you believe it? What is going on there? Well, what was their goal? What were they trying to do? They're trying to go up where? To heaven. Okay, so God had to actually kind of help them out. How's that? He had to come down to see that tower they were building. It's an awfully long way up to me. That's what God's saying, and you're never going to make it. Okay, so basically all of your knowledge is a very small subset of mine. And no matter how much technology you have and no matter how many discoveries you make, I created it all. And so we find our, our humbling in considering the incredible mind of God. But I still think Genesis 11 is a remarkable passage here for what it is that God originally built in the human mind and, and the way we cooperate, the way that even though we're mortal, we pass on our knowledge from generation to generation through writing and books and medium like that so that the, the accumulate, accumulated body of knowledge we can kind of quickly attain by reading and studying and then go on from there. Can you imagine if we didn't die, how much we'd be able to accomplish? If you're still in your prime at age 700 or 800, you know, still cranking it out, it'd be amazing. But God also knew the power of sin and evil and that was not good. 
And so he wanted to slow that down so that the gospel could advance. But anyway, that's something to think about, and that is our creativity and our intellectual process. And then finally, uh, in terms of the mental side, we have emotions. We're emotional beings. Uh, Like God, we react emotionally in a wide range of ways to a wide range of stimulations. Now, animals show some of these. I know you want to talk to me about your dog wagging his tail so excitedly when he's about to get a treat. Okay, I'm not denying that there is some kind of dog emotion. I don't know what it is. I, I'm not a dog lover myself. But Grudem acknowledges that, and, and, uh, uh, but he says that there's different levels of human emotion compared to that which we see in the animal world. He put it this way. After watching my son's baseball game, I can simultaneously feel sad that his team lost, happy that he played well, proud that he was a good sport, thankful to God for giving me a son and giving me the joy of watching him grow up, joyful because of the song of praise that has been echoing in my mind all afternoon and anxious because we're going to be late for dinner. So, and that's a man. Imagine a woman and all the complexities of the emotions that were going on there. You know, I mean, men are kind of emotionally stunted, you know, but, uh, and all I'm saying is that, that we are just at a much higher, higher level uh, than the animal uh, world around us. And so you see it reflected, I think, here in 2 Corinthians 6.10. Sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. I think we can understand that, can't we? In the gospel ministry, there is great sorrow and great joy at the same time. Okay, so those are the mental aspects. And we also have the relational aspects. We can relate to one another as the father and the son relate to one another. So also we can. There's the depth of interpersonal relationships that animals cannot approach, such as marriage, parent-child, church, human society, things like that. Secondly, marriage itself displays a unity and a level of communication very much like that in the Trinity and also, as we know from Ephesians 5, a picture of Christ in the church. And man in his relationship to the rest of the creation is godlike in his right to rule and exercise dominion. So it says, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, etc. And then in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea. So we are given dominion. We are given a, a right to rule, and that is God-like. The final aspect I want to talk about, about being in the image of God, are the physical aspects. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I know that John 4:24 says, God is spirit. And in the catechism, we teach our son every week, or every day, actually, we go over it, um, say, what is God? Answer, God is spirit and has not a body like men. So uh, God does not have a physical body, all right? However... Our physical bodies reflect aspects of God's capabilities. And so the Bible uses what we call anthropomorphic language for God. It speaks of God's hand or his arm being stretched out. It speaks of God's eyes roaming to and fro over the earth or God's ear uh, in in prayer. It talks about that. For example, Psalm 94.9 says, Does he who implanted the ear, does he not hear? Uh, He who formed the eye, does he not see? Yes, he does. He just doesn't need an ear and an eye to do it. That's all. He just, he, he does his seeing and his hearing at a higher level than, than we do. We need the organ or we can't have the function. But the organ in our body reflects something God can do without the organ. You see what I'm getting at? So it speaks of the hand of the Lord, not that he actually has a hand, but that he can do things like the hand does. It speaks of the fingers of the Lord in Psalm 8. Uh, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have created, that God's fingers, like a pianist, 
or like a fine detail craftsman, he made the universe. So the fingers of God. You know, there's a lot of this kind of language. I'm sure you've seen it in the Bible. It doesn't mean that God actually has a body, but what it means is that everything that we can do with our fingers and hands and with our eyes and ears and mouth, God can do without needing those organs. That's what we're getting at. So it says in Isaiah 59, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And Christ's incarnation and bodily resurrection shows how the human body is now eternally part of Christ. Christ forever and ever has a body. And it's an amazing thing when you think about it. I know that God is spirit and Christ was and is spirit too, but he has a body. Now, I don't understand that body. I, I don't know what it, it is to have a spiritual body. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of the body, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, uh, then there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So Jesus is a life-giving spirit, but he's the second Adam who's going to give us a body like his own, and it's a spiritual body. Now, raise your hand if you can tell me what a spiritual body is. I don't know what it is. Maybe afterwards you can come up and tell me what it is. I don't know what it is, but I do know that Jesus has a human body now. We believe in what we call the bodily resurrection of Christ, right? So Jesus has that body. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches the same thing. Now, a final quote here from Grudem. Our great dignity as image bearers of God. It would be good for us to reflect on our likeness to God more often. It will probably amaze us to realize that when the creator of the universe wanted to create something more like himself than all the rest of creation, he made us. Isn't that incredible to think about that? When he wanted to make something that reflected himself better than anything else, he made, he made man. That's amazing. This realization will give us a profound sense of dignity and significance as we reflect on the excellence of all the rest of God's creation. The starry universe, the abundant earth, the world of plants and animals and the angelic kingdoms are remarkable. They're even magnificent. But we are more like our creator than any of these. Isn't that incredible? We are the culmination of God's infinitely wise and skillful work of creation. Even though sin has greatly marred that likeness, we nonetheless now reflect much of it and shall even more as we grow in likeness to Christ. Well, I hope that's encouraged you. It's encouraged me. You know, it's amazing to reflect on what it is that should be our true sense of self-esteem, sense of worth and value in the world. Is it not our original creation, the image of God, and our recreation in the image of Christ through faith in Him? Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the study tonight that we've had on the doctrine of man. Thank you for helping us to learn. I know that uh, the things that we share tonight, there's nothing uh, uh, radically new or unusual, but Lord, it's good to reflect again on them and try to try to understand, Lord, what you made when you made man in your image, male and female in the image of God. And I pray that each of my brothers and sisters here that are listening would be encouraged and strengthened. I pray that we treat other people better, be more patient with them and kind, more loving. I pray that we would try to glorify you in all of all the things we say and do. Lord, uh, give us uh, strength to understand your word and to carry out uh, the role that you have for us in this world. Thank you especially for Jesus Christ. Uh, it's his image that we're going to be conformed to, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Lord, help us uh, to be more and more like him by putting sin to death and following the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.